Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. I have a great life, but it's not a perfect life, but it's good. It's my shit's like an above-ground pool. You ever seen one of them? It's a pool. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, today is my birthday. What did you get me for a present? Shit, how did I not know that it was your birthday, man? Happy birthday. That's You that's, didn't know? I, di- I didn't. I guess I'm not on Facebook. <laughs> it's amazing how outsourcing birthdays to Facebook has just ruined my ability to... <laughs> so is this the big 5-0? Is this the- no, no, it is not. <laughs> I am in my 40s. Well, I got you something secret <laughs> that I can't discuss. <laughs> you didn't but know it was my birthday, but you still got me. A, yeah. Yeah. Well, I was saving it. It's just, let's just say that it vibrates. It's large. Paul Bloom. <laughs> no, happy birthday. Let me, uh, let, let's, let's have this episode be in the spirit of celebration and a cheerful spirit while we discuss the problem of evil and the odyssey. Yeah. So today we're going to, to celebrate, we're going to talk about the book of Job in the second segment and a long promised episode, one that a lot of listeners have been urging us to get to. Um, and then in the first segment, it's, I, I don't know exactly, like it seems like a good coupling with the book of Job, but I don't <laughs> yeah. exactly, I can't articulate why exactly, but it is a, a manifesto of transhumanism by one of the transhumanist, uh, I guess, founders. Zoltan Istvan. Zoltan Istvan. Uh, he was a former presidential candidate in 2016. Uh, I, I voted for him. I remember now. <laughs> just, yeah. just kidding. I did, I did not vote. <laughs> and and it's also a kind of a screed against environmentalism, which right. I think a lot of people would take more issue with. I was more offended by the kind of philosophical naivete that <laughs> underlies this. But oh, interesting. Not the not like not the actual empirical stuff. There's some philosophy here that bothers you. There is, and it's, you know, it's something we've seen before, like more sophisticated versions of it than this, but it's, there is kind of underlying this piece, and it's called Environmentalists Are Wrong, Nature Isn't Sacred, and We Should Replace It. And then it just shows this kind of terrifying picture of like a skyline full of buildings with their lights on, 
Uh, I know. Norm- normally it wouldn't be like, it's just like a cityscape, but the way that it's like, it, like the photo has been edited, it just makes it look like an endless sea of skyscraper windows. Yeah. Um, it, it, it yeah. Ha- the, the whole thing is very, it's some sort of combination of anti-natalism, which I assume <laughs> you like about it and Brave New World or some maybe slightly darker vision of a utopia. But I so wait. I don't think it's antinatalist. Like, this, it, he said one of the central things that he starts off with is that that uh, transhumanists want to live forever, which is like the it's as as opposite as you can get. Well, yes, but it it it's antinatalist in that it thinks life as we currently have it, based in biology and biological human nature is full of suffering and evil right and that mother earth is a hostile place i'm quoting life is vicious it makes me think of pet dogs and cats and how it's reported that they sometimes start eating their owner after they've died can we quickly just get to the the because it's very early in the piece Yes. The, the, yeah. Many transhumanists want to change all this. They want to rid their worlds of biology. They favor concrete, steel, and code. Where once biological evolution was necessary to create primates and then modern humans, conscious and directed evolution has replaced it. Planet Earth doesn't need iniquitous natural selection. It needs premeditated moral algorithms conceived by logic that do the most good for the largest number of people. This is something that an AI will probably be better at than humans in less than two decades' time. Okay. I, when I read that, I could, I, like, I'm not convinced this isn't just a troll and, and that, this, that he's giving transhumanism a bad name. <laughs> Well, no, Jeffrey Epstein gave transhumanism <laughs> right. a bad name. So so that, that's actually how it came across your desk. <laughs> right. I, I subscribe to this thing called The Browser, which gives articles. And uh, after Jess, Jeffrey Epstein was arrested before his quote-unquote suicide, the, the, it, it came out that he was this transhumanist. He was very inspired by this. He wanted to spread his seed and his DNA in some New Mexican compound or something and wanted to get his head frozen and all the things that, uh, um, but yeah, then this guy is actually was embarrassed by the fact that Jeffrey Epstein, he thought it was terrible press. It's, and it's unclear what, what Jeffrey Epstein fucking a lot of women to have his baby is adding to the transhumanist cause. (laughs) You don't think that's a necessary step to our digital utopia? Like they're like is is he like genetically combining them with like little robots at least they're just they're just Jeffrey Epstein kids. So can I just read really quickly the definition because I had to go look up the Wikipedia definition yeah. of transhumanism. So transhumanism is an international philosophical movement that advocates for the transformation of the human condition by developing and making widely available sophisticated technologies to greatly enhance human intellect and physiology. And this is actually a such a long Wikipedia article compared to what I think the, the actual influence of these people is that you can just tell that it's a bunch of nerds. Yeah. But that sentence that advocating for the transformation of the human condition to by developing and making widely available sophisticated technologies to enhance human intellect and physiology, that alone I, I don't object to very much. It's the ridiculous things that this guy starts saying that border on 
uh, eugenics and shit. So to be charitable before we start, and I think you're going to be have a higher opinion of this. There is a lot of suffering on in the in the earth. There's nothing, and I don't think I think he definitely strawmans environmentalists. I don't think they see nature as sacred in the way that he seems to attribute to them. But something that would improve the well-being of sentient creatures would be one that, at the very least, would be worth taking seriously as. Uh, Absolutely. And I will say, at least, I I have come across environmentalists who seem to view um, it as sacred, nature as sacred, um, in in everything but the religious sense. Um, And even sort of unable to defend why, say, environments should not be changed, for instance, like, uh, or why human beings being in the environment and changing it is wrong. So I'll I'll give him that. I I think I would give him that. Like, it's not. Yeah, there are extremists of all kinds. And I live in Ithaca, New York, where where I'm probably more likely to encounter. People here actually recycle. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> we we recycle. Fucking that quacks. Doesn't, that doesn't do shit, though. <laughs> I think yeah, that's that something that everybody seems to agree upon, like that recycling is actually kind of uh, a wash in terms <laughs> yeah. of the earth, but yet we still do it. Anyway, that said, the hubris of this <laughs> is kind of like flabbergasting. It's just astonishing. So there's two questions, right? There's the empirical question of whether this technological new age that is run by these people in the trans, whether they could possibly accomplish what uh, this guy seems to think that they could accomplish. That's number one. I would be very skeptical of that, but you know, that I suppose that's open for debate. It's a it's a ridiculous optimism, you know. It not not just whether or not we can accomplish this total transformation of humans into code. He, he says things like, you know, but before the century is out, right. we can't even fucking get, you know automated cars self-driving cars to work well like let alone right and this was published in april so it's not like he doesn't like self-driving cars has been something my tech friends have been telling me you know for 10 years that are is just two years away yeah but then the second thing the thing that i said was bothering me the most is there's this kind of idea that they are value neutral here like in that line, planet Earth needs premeditated moral algorithms conceived by logic that do the most good for the largest number of people. The idea that this is that these algorithms are conceived by logic and reason uh, or is that's the that's the philosophically fucked up part of this. It's one thing to just be a utilitarian and admit it. This is that's right. what like Mustafa Mond in, in Brave New World essentially was. But he at least recognized that he was embracing a value system and that there were trade-offs. There were other values that were going to be lost if you embraced the the value of reducing the most amount of suffering, increasing the greatest amount of happiness. But they don't recognize that they're making a value judgment. They think that this is something that's just conceived by logic and reason, and that's just it's just false. It's not dishonest because I, I don't. I think they might even believe it, but it's just it's just wrong. Yeah, and I, I I wouldn't malign Sam Harris by putting him in the same category as this, but 
But the view among many people that some form of utilitarianism is correct and and therefore now we can start working on ways to maximize it. I think it is sort of it, it this guy sounds from that little community of of futurists from Silicon Valley who have accepted that as so incontrovertibly true that the only question is now how do we go about doing it? And and I think that there would be room to just argue that this is a value judgment and and say, um, look, there's a lot of things about being a human that that it comes in conflict with something like a straight up utilitarian ethic. And we're willing to sacrifice that because when we all become robots or or algorithms in the cloud, then we won't need things like loyalty or or trust or whatever, because we will be immortal and un- incapable of being harmed. And therefore, we can just change, right? Like we can make our value system more. Yeah. And then um, you could respect, like, I would still, you know, strongly disagree with them, but yeah. I could respect the view. Right. But yeah, you, it's that it's that view that it's so obvious, dude. Like, come on. That this like, is just, uh, like, uh, you're being irrational. You're being just like, you're believing in fairy tales if you don't subscribe to this view, whereas we are being hardcore logicians. That's the right. thing that uh, that I find. And, and, you know, again, the Brave New World version of this, Mustafa Mons, like, yes, we have to give up Shakespeare. We have to br- give up tragedies because they don't make sense. And we have to give up freedom. And we have, but we're willing to do it because of the amount of suffering we can prevent and the amount of happiness that we can create. But like they don't accept that there is even a trade-off here, except in uh, superficially utilitarian terms where, you know, some people like sunsets and, you know, beautiful mountainscapes and uh, biodiversity or whatever. And so they're going <laughs> right. to be sad. But Which, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we could talk about that, uh, that whether or not nature is something... To, to be valued like the thought of being purely digital creatures with like no biomatter on this planet at all just a bunch of rocks like it seems ugly aesthetically but i'm i'm willing to suspend my you know my judgment about whether that would be terrible because i know that my intuitions about liking nature are something that i you know if i were a computer i might not have anymore um it's hard to shake that but I want to just nail home this point that you're making, though, about like this, this is, you know, we've been doing this for seven years, right? And over and over again, when we talk about utilitarianism, we often get people telling us that we did a bad, that we straw man, that we were un, unfair to utilitarian claims or that we were not seeing the reasoning behind it. With f- utilitarians who have friends like this, like... <laughs> They yeah. don't need they don't need enemies because there is a lot about utilitarianism that I am super sympathetic to. And in fact, I, I'm kind of undecided about the, the ethical truth and and good utilitarians wouldn't be as irresponsible as this. I don't think. No, I mean, right. And, and like you said, it's a spectrum. There's the sort of Sam Harris view, which is way more sophisticated than this. But I think ultimately we think is guilty of a far less easy to spot sort of error. I think Peter Singer is guilty of this sort of error once he 
he abandoned the kind of Humean foundation of his utilitarianism for a rationalist one like Derek Parfit. So, I mean, there are way better versions of making this mistake, thinking that you're not making a value commitment. But yeah, this is the worst... This is the, yeah. like the worst kind of example. But like you said, we, we will get emails. We will get people on Reddit. We will get expressions of this. And I just, I, I, I want people to at least understand that this is something that they need to justify. You can't just say that something is conceived by logic. That doesn't make it conceived by logic. You can't yeah. just say that people who disagree with you are irrational. That doesn't make you rational. Like, you have to at least explain how that would work. And that's what yeah. I think Sam Harris and Josh Green and Peter Singer at least try to do. Absolutely. Like that's, you know, the, the entire Josh Green's and Sam Harris's books are, are attempts at, at this. Yeah. And we obviously have disagreements that we've on record for it, but that's... Yeah. And maybe I'm being unfair, but like I, by lumping people together, but this sense of, of, um, that I have, that there is this community of, um, logical Silicon Valley, futuristic people worried about, about AI, you know, being an existential crisis like that in some, in some ways seems to me like the kind of argument that they're making is something like, well, computers are like run by logic so like if we can just get computers to do morals then obviously that's the best solution but there's no there's no unpacking of a claim like that they just like well obviously like algorithms can solve so many problems why don't we just toss that problem to like at morality and see <laughs> see right. how toss that framework that method at morality and uh, but it yeah it doesn't work that way because something has to feed the algorithm the algorithm has, has to know yeah. what it's trying to to aim for it's not that complicated that's no it but, right. really is no like okay, but let me this ask isn't some let me, subtle philosophical <laughs> you know insight yeah. but let me ask you this um yeah. uh is there part what like one of the things that i was worried that you would be strongly objecting to that i have no strong objection to and kind of embrace is the um the uh embracing of technology to solve a lot of the suffering and that that actually might mean trade-offs with with nature so like a actually using uh gene editing to make the world a better place like a lot of people have knee-jerk reactions to to that to me i'm like well let, let's toss technology to solve all like there's a lot there are a lot of problems that really could be solved by fixing nature like I'm I'm excited about it actually. It sounds like you have some your transhumanism <laughs> curious. Well, I maybe. don't want to die. Yeah, I don't want to. <laughs> right. I I don't think I can get uploaded. I don't. I believe that that's bullshit. Right. Everybody yeah. knows that. I feel that way about transporters. But um. But I do believe that that there might be real possibilities that within our lifetimes, um we can live a lot longer than anybody has ever lived except for job obviously who lived 140 <laughs> years after <the laughs> after getting god totally <laughs> fucked with them I, you know the gene editing stuff i get a little i i i'm wary of it but i don't have a well worked out it, it, like i i would 
I, I'm concerned about it, but I have no in principle objection right. to it, I guess. Um, I wouldn't want to do it. I wouldn't want my kid to do it. Unless they said your kid is going to be, you know, born with Tay-Sachs and we can stop right. the, uh, her from having Tay-Sachs, then, well... Right. Um, or given your given your general views, like if they were going to be born with brown eyes, right? You want. Yeah, no, I want the blue eyed blonde <laughs> beast. <laughs> I mean, uh, I like dark now, so you know. I really look forward to the uh, the the like uh, pull down menus for what your baby's going to be like. Uh, <laughs> like a little. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, look, medicine has made a lot of advances. Medicine is something that is on balance clearly a positive and that is fucking that's that's yeah. not letting nature take its course and yeah. you know but then we get thalidomide babies every once in a while like yeah I'm all, I'm all for the 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 actual like safeguards that we don't fuck things up too badly because we we could but good I, I'm just I'm just glad that in principle you're not I don't think so. We, we could do an yeah. episode on that. Certainly that's something yeah. that we've been urged to do. I just don't know enough about it. And I really tend to not like the bioethics literature, at least the, the, the literature I've come across. But uh, but I'd be open to. But this is, it's funny because when I sent it to you, I was like, this is some scary dystopian, like, mm-hmm. if these people, are, you know, and you know that there's a, there's a bunch of them in Silicon Valley and they're just so frustrated with how irrational everyone's being <laughs> preventing, you know, self-driving cars and by how people don't understand probability and one person gets killed with a self-driving car and that sets back the cause for 10 years. But I, I think that there is like there's something that they're missing about why humans, ordinary humans not Silicon Valley humans are <laughs> wary of this and resistant to it. And it isn't just being irrationally in love with nature and this, it's uh, holiness. It is a worry about what happens when we entrust things that we at least feel we have some control over and have some control over to these people and their algorithms. But, you know, for the the rest of this article that, that we're talking about that we'll link to in the show notes, um, it, it's crazy. And and this guy s- seems to verge on on uh, on a street corner, like <laughs> raving. <laughs> yeah. As someone who traffics in the hyperbolic sometimes, <laughs> this is like I can't compete with with uh, this there's uh, some great quotes in this well he sounds like eager to, to damage yeah, the planet like exactly. not, not just indifferent to it he's like let's burn it down already like he yeah no uh, he hates nature this guy <laughs> and he you know he lives in this beautiful area too like he could just go like he's 40 minutes from like some of the most beautiful hikes up with the redwoods and like well okay here's what i don't believe in evil per se but if there was such a thing it would be nature a monster of arbitrary living entities consuming and devouring each other simply to survive. Environmentalists want you to believe that nature is sacred and a perfect balance of living things thriving off one another. Nonsense. It's a world war of all life fighting agony and loss, of fight or flight, of death today or death tomorrow for you and your offspring. Uh, it's, I mean, it's not, it's not exactly wrong. But yeah. it's, <laughs> He's just an asshole. He's just an asshole. <laughs> All right. 
<laughs> when we come back, um, we will talk about the book of Job and God's bet with Satan. Let's take a moment to thank our sponsor for this episode, Simple Habit, a five-minute vacation for your mind. Simple Habit is a meditation app for people with busy lives. Hey, Li, Liza. What? You have a busy life. You know how I keep asking you to try meditating? Yeah, I, I kind of have to go do my Well, homework. what if I told you you could start with meditations as short as five minutes, even one minute? Would that convince you to start trying? You could be on your phone while you do it. I'll think about it. Like a lot of things, meditation is just about building a habit. Once you start doing daily or almost daily meditations, it just becomes part of your life, like brushing your teeth, and it feels great. Simple Habit understands this and makes developing this daily routine easy. They specialize in short meditations, and they have meditations that are tailored to various aspects of your day. Meditations for the morning, for going to sleep, for your commute, a big meeting, for parenting issues. I spend a lot of time in that category. For unwinding after work, and there's even some meditations for Eliza Earmuffs. Mindful sex. Most meditation apps have just a handful of teachers, and let's be honest, you're always going to find some of them a little annoying. Simple Habit has more than 100 experts offering guided meditations of all kinds so you can find the ones that work for you. They also have my favorite guided meditation person, Oren J. Sofer, who has a bunch of five-minute and up meditations and also a number of courses, too. Once you download the app, there are hundreds of meditations available for free and thousands with the premium version. So go to simplehabit.com slash verybadwizards and download that app. If you want the premium version, we have a special offer. The first 50 listeners to go to simplehabit.com slash verybadwizards will get 30% off the premium subscription. Either way, premium or free, please use that link, simplehabit.com slash verybadwizards, so they'll know you're from our show. Thanks to simplehabit.com for sponsoring this episode. Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. This is the time of the show where we like to take a moment to thank everybody for their support. Thank you for every kind of support that you give us, including emailing us, having conversations online about our shows, um, tweeting to us. We really appreciate the community that you guys have built and we enjoy being a part of it and uh we're just grateful if you want to be part of the community all you have to do is get in touch with us or log on to one of those communities you can email us verybadwizards at gmail.com you can tweet to us at tamler and at peas 
And right now I'm just a little pissed that I don't have 10,000 followers like Tamler does because uh, <laughs> I just, I thought you would come to terms with that. Like you don't really tweet very much. And I, I mean, I just feel like for a long time I had more followers than you. And then I, you wrote a book and you just passed me. And now I've just, you know, like that's all I want. Well, you know what? Just <laughs> do something that gets retweeted by Ben Shapiro. <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a good good. So good also point. add very bad wizard uh, at very bad wizard at very bad wizards. You can tweet yeah. to us. You can uh, go to our Reddit um, to the subreddit community reddit.com slash r slash very bad wizards or to our Facebook page um, and join in on the discussion facebook.com slash very bad wizards. And if you want to support us in more tangible ways, reviews on iTunes really helps us reach more followers. Uh, or more listeners, followers, we're not cult leaders. You can give us a one-time donation on PayPal, or you can become one of our beloved Patreon supporters. And right now, there is still, and it'll still be for a few more days after this is released, um, a call for episode topics for our Patreon-selected episode. That's when all of our patrons can suggest episodes, and there we have a lot of uh, suggestions already. And then our $5 and up um, supporters will get to vote on the five finalists or five or six finalists that we select among all those suggestions. And we always end up doing way more of those topics than the one that's just the winner. So we really appreciate that. We're so grateful for all of your support and honored. It's a, it's a real honor to have gone on for this long and to still have so many people sticking with us when there's so many other podcasts out there and speaking of other podcasts out there our faux rivals uh the guys from partially examined life or at least one guy from partially examined life has a new has a new podcast called pretty much pop a culture podcast and the reason i'm bringing it up is because he just jotted us a note to let us know that that pel was in their attempt to uh, imitate very bad wizards and talk about uh, more pop culture stuff. Um, I think that's what the email directly said. Pretty uh, much, yeah. Like, <laughs> we're really jealous of your Big Lebowski Pulp Fiction. That's uh, right. You yeah. guys get to talk about such cool stuff. Uh, he, he started. He started a podcast. And Mark Lindsay Mayer. Uh, it's. Uh, we'll put a link to it. Um, check it out because it is. If if you're interested in philosophers talking about pop culture, obviously this is right up your alley. And hopefully I get to go on soon and talk about Watchmen, like a, the big nerd that I am. And, you know, um, speaking of big nerds, I think we should do a Patreon bonus episode on Dark, the Netflix. Series. Oh, yeah. I'm totally up for that. I have to finish it. Um, yeah. You finished it already. I did. Yeah? I yeah. binged okay. things. I don't just stop for no reason. You know, I like to edge myself. All right. Let's talk about the book of Job, as, as you said um, we've gotten requests to talk about this. And, and honestly, I've been wanting to talk about it for a while. And I think that just because it's a little bit longer than, say, Ecclesiastes, um, maybe we avoided it. I don't know. But it is up there with one of my favorite books of the Bible and just a great piece of literature. It kind of blows my mind that thousands of years ago, somebody sat and thought about the problem of evil in, in the same way. Like, this is... A, Something that I don't know about you, but I can relate to. It's very clear. It's a very lucid description. I've I've always loved it because of that. The problem of evil, the theodicy. That's probably what made me lose my religion. 
but I also just love the poetry and I love how fundamentally dissatisfying yeah <laughs> it is it's something just leaves you hanging <laughs> just that's the thing that I love about it the most in the same way that Ecclesiastes and and it's one of those the the three wisdom books proverbs right. and Ecclesiastes and book of Job and even though this one has a plot and it's a fairly easy to follow plot and Ecclesiastes doesn't really have a plot it ha- it, it leaves you with the same kind of questions both do we accept whatever moral there is and what is the moral and is there even a moral and why like how do, how can you reconcile certain a- aspects of it with other aspects of it it doesn't it doesn't fit together and in that way provokes so many questions in any in anybody who reads it it's interesting that you said it's a really great expression of the problem of evil. I, I, I don't know if it, if it is or not exactly. It definitely offers a solution to a, the problem of evil. But, but the problem itself isn't as fleshed out. So I wonder why you say that. Yeah, so the problem, like maybe I specifically mean the problem of evil as as framed in the in this particular way, which is believing that a just God exists. Why does evil happen to a good person? And the reason I think it's a very good um, way to describe that problem is that it gives us a little prologue that makes it. Very, very clear, right, where Satan, the the adversary, goes to God, and God tells him about Job, and he is described by God himself as being blameless and upright, and yet all this shit happens to him. This guy is blameless and upright, even God admits it, and then bad shit happens to him. Well, bad shit doesn't happen to him, right? This is why I don't—it's God essentially giving Satan license to do bad shit. To Job, just to prove to Satan that this is a guy who's who's pure, and his righteousness is not just based in all the bounty that he has: three thousand camels, five hundred yoke of oxen, five hundred donkeys, and <laughs> a large number of servants. Should we just go through the plot first? Just it's not a big, it's not a complicated no. plot, but <laughs> so. So God is having this little dispute with Satan. It's interesting that there's just Satan. I I don't associate Satan so much with the Hebrew Bible, but apparently he comes up a a couple times. This is probably the most prominent one. Yeah, and it's not and it's not like at all a fleshed out theology of a of a devil. So Satan here really isn't the devil for the for the author. It's the word means adversary, but. Because they say the adversary, usually that word would get translated as just adversary. Um, but because they put the article of the adversary, it gets translated as Satan. And it seems as if what that person is, is just somebody who's working for God. And his job is to like be a prosecuting attorney, right? Like it's not, so it's clearly not the devil. And they're just, it seems like they are just talking. There's no, yeah. like, there's nothing at stake here. 
and but like I, yeah he's he's being prosecuted look look at my servant job no one on earth like him he's blameless and upright a man who fears god and and sh- and shuns evil and saying's like well yeah because you're god and you bestow all this great stuff on him and he says all right take it all away but don't hurt job but you can do essentially whatever you want besides that and so he wipes out all his property and kills all his sons and daughters and still job says naked i came from my mother's womb and naked i will depart the lord gave and the lord has taken away may the name of the lord be praised already my hackles are raised by this like job is saying yeah well i didn't get born with all these children and <laughs> yeah. i and now i'm not gonna die so like everything's okay you know and yeah. he's not charging god so then satan says well yeah but he still has his health yeah, he's like, you haven't touched him. Satan says, skin for skin, a man will give all he has for his own life. Um, but stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. And that's when, when the Lord says, all right, fine. He's, go in, ahead. he's in your hands, but you must spare his life. You can do anything you want except kill him. And right. It's like the opposite of the giving tree, essentially. It's like... <laughs> The taking, <laughs> the, the taking, taking tree. tree. So then he's now just covered in sores and an outcast <laughs> and a object of ridicule and contempt in his. In he's his, scratching himself with a broken piece of pottery. Yeah, um, you know he's yeah. head shaved. He's, he's in ashes. He's cutting himself, and his wife is super supportive. <laughs> I love Job's wife. Says, "Are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die." I, I think she's more saying, I, I like to interpret that as like, this is fucked up. Like this is a fucked up situation. Just admit it, you know, just yeah. curse God yeah. because he has screwed us over. She's an interesting character because she gets to live. She's the only one that gets to live throughout right. all of this, but right. she doesn't have, but she doesn't play much of a Maybe role. Maybe that, that was part of the punishment. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> <laughs> so then he has um, three friends that come and at first they seem supportive they sleep with him <laughs> and stay with him for seven days and seven nights but then when job starts complaining about his fate and challenging god they launch into there's there's three of them and all but one of them does three speeches there, no, all three of them do. So there's a cycle. There's Job, one friend, Job, other friend, Job, third friend, and they do that three times. But I don't think um, they do. I think the last one who is Zophar... Oh, yeah, yeah. He never gets the final He never result. gets That's his right. final yeah. speech because That's Job right. has finally just convinced him <laughs> that, no, it's true. Like, I'm blame. Yeah. And, 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 and the speeches are interesting because sometimes they're mean... Sometimes it it's like Job and the, the and the characters and his friends are talk they're talking past each other. There's brilliant sarcasm. I mean, it's a it's beautiful. A lot of it is beautiful, and then a lot of it is just like digs. They're just digging at each other. This is the first one. Uh, Eliphaz the Temanite. Uh, consider now who, being innocent, has ever perished. Where were the upright ever destroyed? This is you know, in just posing that question to him without having any evidence that his kids had, had sinned, it, it seems like a direct challenge to 
the the virtue of his children where Eliphaz has no real reason to think that they were non-virtuous, certainly not sufficiently to deserve what happened to them. Yeah, and I I mean, they're not, it, for some reason here, it feels more like Job's kids dying are, is just one of the ways in which he was punished. Like, there's not like much the discussion about whether, yeah. yeah, exactly. There's You have, like, slaves, you have oxen, you have kids. That's the little different levels of how they're going to, uh, fuck with Job, and then finally him, uh, his his body, and so so I don't think they give too much. It's because the the attitude of the book at the end is that uh, they just replace his kids, yeah. <laughs> and, like, and everything's fine, everything, everything's now, cool. I think that's right, and you can't take maybe so you could be offended by that, or you could just not take it that literally as the the kids themselves seem like property. Right, exactly, um, exactly. And he, if you, you know, you lose a thousand oxen, you get two thousand oxen. You get the same number of kids, but the daughters are even more beautiful. So yeah. everything's fine. <laughs> everything's cool. So I, I don't want to go through all the speeches in too much detail, but what suffices to say is that the, it suffices to say that Job is getting sort of increasingly defensive, and his friends seem to be increasingly. You even get the sense that first time that they can't believe that Job is saying this stuff about God. Yeah. Um, and Job is getting more and more, I think, bold in saying like, no, like at least God could at least talk to me. That way I could defend myself. Like even if he told me that anything, like I would at least have an answer from God and I could die and that, that would be fine. If you're not going to do that, God, just kill me, right? Like, because yeah. this life is not not a, a life worth living. And and a lot of the language I was reading is, um, is sort of legal, where where yeah. uh, Job feels unfairly judged and he wants a fair trial. Exactly. Right? That's let me go before I want to present my evidence, and I want you to give me Exhibit A, B, and C of where I've sinned, and yeah. I don't believe you can do it. I don't think yeah. you have the evidence. I think this is, uh, I am being framed, essentially, right. by right. God. I'm being framed by God, and you're yeah. railroading me. But a couple of things sort of stuck out in all the speeches. The first is that they don't seem to be on the same page, not just in terms of God's justice, but even in the ways that they're responding to each other. They take digs at each other, but when one of them is talking about how God must have punished Job because he he did he he wasn't good enough to the poor, or uh, he he turned people away who were needy, Job will launch into how the wicked people flourish, and then only in a later response will he respond to the accusation that he must have done something wrong. But yeah, they're certainly not understanding each other. It seems as if there's no growth in the argument. I don't know how, how to say it, but the, the argument doesn't proceed as if point has been made, point has been refuted. <laughs> right. But it's like one of our worst episodes or one of our normal episodes where you and I. Exactly. Where one um, of us is saying something that's very, that's disconnected. It's on the same <laughs> broad topic, but disconnected right. from what the other person has said. Right. But, but and, and I, I, a charitable way to look at this is that the friends are all ignoring Job's pleas to, because they can't believe that Job isn't just admitting 
that he's probably did some bad shit. And it doesn't matter what Job says. It's all, it's, they're like almost just independent. They've, they're prepared, they've prepared their arguments and their arguments are subtly different. One of them is nailing tenuously saying, Job, you must've done something bad. Another one is saying, who are you to even question? Like, you don't know what God knows, right? Like, um, so they're, they're different. And then, and then they also, it's, they tell them not to worry. Don't worry. Wicked, the wicked will be punished. Like things will turn out okay for you. He's like, well, I have sores all over my body and all my kids are dead and all my oxen (laughs) are gone. But, and, and he keeps, Job keeps imploring them. Like, look, I'm not lying to you. Why would I lie to you? Why would I lie to God? And, stop it's 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 sort of like a bad dream almost they keep t- making these long speeches to him and not really listening to what he's saying <laughs> yeah. in, in, in response to it this is like one of the most torturous aspects of the text is just him being like are you kidding me are you fucking kidding me with all this <laughs> exactly i just forgot you know i haven't read this in a long time i just forgot this frustration that job has with his friends where he's directly saying so by the way we're we read the new international version if anybody's curious one of my favorite is job opens up in chapter 26 he says how you have helped the powerless how you have saved the arm that is feeble what advice you have offered to one without wisdom and what great insight you have displayed and it's just dripping with sarcasm and i don't think i'd ever read something like that in the bible yeah and then god is going to be even more sarcastic when he comes (laughs) back into the picture with uh, and that's the speech i think where job his his responses have been getting progressively longer and the friends speeches have been getting progressively shorter and this is his longest speech by far job's i think it goes on for like seven or eight chapters and it shuts them up like it's the last speech. Yeah, starting that's like, right. Starting at chapter twenty six, they're all like, "Okay, we're we're out of arguments here," you know. Yeah. And I don't know if they're giving up or if you get the sense that they're giving up that they've kind of like, "Yeah, I mean, I don't know what to say." I, I like that Job. This is the sort of heroic aspect of Job where he is. He's like, "I'm not giving up. I'm not pretending that I sinned." I refuse to do that. I'm maintaining my integrity. And you can say what you want, but I'm not going to give in. I'm not going to, at least for now. This is one of the reasons it's so important to buy the the very beginning part where God himself admits that Job is blameless because or else I would be like, Cool, come on, Job. You must have done something. <laughs> right. Like, <laughs> Haven't you read the research on like <laughs> biases and exactly uh, how we rationalize our own behavior? And then this other guy, this other kid comes in. Just shows up. He's very mad at the three three friends for not continuing to pontificate uh against Job. And then launches into a speech of his own. This is a very strange part of it because he spends like two chapters just saying that he is about to give a speech. <laughs> yeah, and, and and that he's younger than them, and like I'm just a caveman. I, I yeah. He's like I. <laughs> yeah, I mean he's definitely uh, virtue signaling. Yeah, yeah. He thinks Job's friends have actually done a bad job with their arguments, right? He's he's like they got it wrong, like, um, and they quit too early. And then he goes, 
on and gives pretty much the same arguments that they did, except that he also says, and you've rebelled against God, and that's a sin. But Well, and there is a subtlety that I, that, that there's a subtlety to what Elihu is saying, which is up until now, the question really has been, uh, well, we're all assuming that God is just. We're all assuming that um, he would punish bad people and not, not punish good people or reward good people. And so Job's suffering must be a result of the sin because or else it would violate our assumption that God is just. Elihu is saying, um, maybe your suffering is actually doing, your suffering is for a reason. And that reason is to change you, to actually like there is some point to your suffering. Your suffering might actually cleanse you. It might actually make you a better person. And he's the only one to really give that um, that kind of defense of suffering. So where do you see this? Uh, let me, let me, let me find it. I highlighted it on my, cause I get a lot of, so in 34, he repays a man for what he has done. He brings upon him, con- uh, what his conduct deserves. It is unthinkable that God would do wrong, that the almighty would preserve justice. This is just echoing what the three friends yeah. were saying in some form. So he said in, in, I think that it was in uh, verse 15, chapter 36, but those who suffer, he delivers in their suffering. He speaks to them in their affliction. So he's, he's, he's trying to say that God is, is communicating through the suffering. Where is this? Chapter 36? Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Verse 15. Verse 15. Yeah. The God, no, but the godless in heart harbor resentment. Even when he fetters them, they do not cry for help. They die in their youth. Yeah, so he's male. saying the godless die, but the people who suffer, like you're suffering, he uh, is afflicting you in order to change you. But I guess, but it's change for what? Like he didn't need to be changed, did he? I yeah, I don't like. I don't think it's a good argument. Yeah. It's subtly different, but but you're right. It's it's subtly different, and and then he goes. He also gives a, an element that ties together all of these speeches, including God's, which is to come. That uh, where he says, "How great is God beyond our understanding? The number of his years is past finding out. Who can understand how he spreads out the clouds, how he thunders? It's like this is just beyond our comprehension. We yeah. have to assume that he is just because he couldn't." govern the earth if he wasn't just like you almost have to right. take that as an axiom is right is what he's saying yeah uh, that's right which that's is right. kind of one of the you know like the euthyphro dilemma it's like no if god is doing it it is just by yeah. definition right and there is a lot of there is a lot of the including in god's speech the uh, like you don't know like, yeah you know you don't know me. <laughs> but that's what's fascinating yeah. is that in this case, the reader does kind of know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of these arguments are speaking to we have no idea what God's ultimate plan is. But in this case, the reader does, even if the characters don't. And it just doesn't seem like one of this, oh, it all fits together in this beautiful best of all possible worlds thing. It's kind of like he proved a point to Satan that he didn't need to prove because Satan's not that big a deal in the Old Testament. And <laughs> right. 
Yeah, no, I'm in fact, it's probably like written or told as one of God's angels who yeah. is in charge of like sort of pointing out interesting things on earth. Right. <laughs> and, 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 and not only that, he <laughs> didn't prove the point because God, because Job did start to complain once he had the boils. So he, uh, he didn't curse. He didn't curse God and die, though. He didn't. He didn't uh, curse no. God. And I, I, I think he's he's hanging on that. He's just right on that edge. He's like, you know, I I gotta know, man. Like, because I, I don't think a good God would do this. So, like, tell me, like, who's gonna tell me what's going on here? I think this is why it's just, you know, for some people, uh, borders on blasphemy because he's continuously pushing, like, to ask. Yeah. what God is doing. And in a way that like, even I, in my religious upbringing, there's a point where you are just told, don't worry. God knows like, and yeah. in God's wisdom, he knows, you know, uh, yesterday I saw a, a very sad tweet. I don't know, you know, somebody tweeted out that they, they had gone to their doctor with their um, pregnant spouse and that there was no heartbeat. And, he said in that tweet, uh, pray for me and my wife. And in, in my timeline, somehow a whole lot, this got retweeted and there were a whole lot of responses and, you know, all very, it was one of those cases of a very nice, you know, the, the good part of Twitter coming out to support him. But the amount of people who just, who, who said, because this was largely religious, uh, group of responders the amount of people who just said well you know we don't know why god does this but we have to trust he is good he yeah. we know he's good we already know he's good so like this must somehow fit in we just don't know like we humans can't can't fathom what his plan is yeah which is one of the you know most popular responses to the problem of evil that if you had independent reason to believe in the goodness of God would be plausible because the, you know, like we don't know, we have a very limited perspective (laughs) Our in our, you know, little pea brained human sized understanding of the, the whole universe. Uh, and God, and God will pound this into Job. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. But, and you know, the, the thing is too, that there is an underlying assumption throughout the whole thing that, um, that at least God is doing it to Job. Like nobody's really questioning that. Like they are, everybody understands that God is doing it. And even if it's allowing, it's allowing in a very active way. Um, And what you don't see is an answer like, well, God, you know, God set the world in motion. Like he doesn't really care because he is described as a personal God who is caring about Job. He's talking about Job up in heaven, right? So, so he could change things. Yeah, no, and, and in fact, another thing you don't see, which is another popular answer to the problem of evil, is a kind of free will defense, which is yeah. God had to give humans free will, and once you give humans free will, like a lot of bad shit can happen. And if <laughs> you shouldn't God, have given those Chaldeans free will, <laughs> if God, yeah, exactly. If God, uh, but but on balance, it's better to have free will and have bad stuff happen than to not have free will. There's none of that. There's not even a none hint, of that. That's right. Hint of that in here. This is clearly God doing it, and there's no there's no sense in which he could have not done it or he could have prevented it, but chose not to, to preserve free will. There's none of that here. Right. And at the heart of it is that all Job's decisions have 
presumably been of the sort that would never lead to these consequences. Yeah. Right? Like, um, although those yeah. Chaldeans, <laughs> those Chaldeans we could, God just used them in there. And you know, there, this is a, this is a big debate and with like Pharaoh's hardened heart that we've yeah. talked about. And, but here it really is that the whole free will issue is just not an issue in, in the book of Job, at least as, as far as I can tell. So before we yeah. get to God, so it goes from El Elihu to God breaking in. What is strange about this Elihu speech, he comes out of nowhere, he's younger, he gives this long preamble as to why he's going to talk. <laughs> he maybe adds some element to the argument I, I don't, it doesn't seem that profound. And then he, he, God kind of interrupts him and he's never heard from again. It's like he wasn't in the <laughs> yeah. text. He, because the other friends are part of the plot for the rest of it, but he's just gone. It just kind of came in and came out. Yeah. You know, there are some, um, like when I was reading about the authorship, there, there I, I think that people, tend to believe that the Elihu speech was added by other people because if you just leave it where Job shuts everybody up it really does seem like he won the argument and it, and the thought is that that maybe the Elihu part was added after uh, this to make it slightly less uh, you know anti-god because as you say it's completely out of the blue you know, there's another thing that's out of the blue. When you were talking about Job's super long speech, yeah. Um, in the middle of that chapter 28, there is it, that that chapter is just sort of a, a a little speech about wisdom that doesn't seem to be coming from Job. It seems to be coming from the author, and people think that that might have been added sort of in the middle. Um, yeah. Where can wisdom be found? Where does understanding dwell? Man does not comprehend its worth. It cannot be found in the land of the living. Um, and then chapter 29 says, Job continued his discourse. And so so it seems as if this has been, this book has been kind of put together with a few different. <laughs> and, and what's interesting about that insertion, if it is an insertion, there are other places throughout the text, this was something that stood out to me, where Job was clearly saying that once you're dead, you're dead. There's no real suggestion of an afterlife. Absolutely. And there's the, the word, I don't know how to pronounce it, sheol, sheol, um, which is the Hebrew for, for just like where the dead go you yeah. know like a, a place of non-existence yeah and there is no right because that would be another solution to the problem of evil that well you will get your reward in heaven and that it will be punished and this seems to be before that view was adopted so we have actually a very old so it's an old world view that has it's before there is a devil like an evil adversary of god like before that's fleshed out and it is before anybody really it you know in in the near east or whatever was believing in an afterlife or in a god that rewarded it so there's nothing so like he's like i know when i die i'm going into the ground but then in 28 doesn't it what you read where uh, but where can wisdom be found where does understanding dwell man does not comprehend its worth it cannot be found in the land of the living i think that's just saying that like that it can't be found on like amongst humans. 
But okay. Yeah, um, that's probably yeah. right. I, you know, one of the things I was thinking, we can talk about this when we just sort of sum up, but this reminds me more of the kind of Homeric gods, you know, a god mm. that gets challenged, a god that ha- can be kind of petty and sarcastic and uh, and wants to prove a point to another god or a lesser being. This has the, you know, like if you're talking about Zeus, you know, Satan right. being, you know, one of the lesser gods, Hermes or right. whatever. Like a demi like a demigod or yeah. Some, yeah. Is uh it, this has more of that feel where the god is a character and it's not totally clear that he's just. And I think this text it it doesn't surprise me that you say that people thought it was blasphemous because there's no tidy resolution. That comes no, to there's this. No, there's there's not at all, and it, it makes me just sort of puzzled as to how it got in. But but what is clear though is the way they speak of God is that he is he is for them the ultimate God, right? He is he is the creator of everything. He is the he says the, the Almighty is beyond our reach and exalted in power and his justice and great righteousness he does not oppress. So they're assuming that there is this you know single. Uh, just omnipotent God. No, that's right. Um, I, I don't mean yeah. to suggest that it's like a polytheistic text, but more yeah. that it reminds me more of a kind of a God who can not just challenge by uh, a, a human, but that the reader is supposed to wonder, well, what the hell is going on here? Why is God acting this way? Should we trust that that god is just what reason should do we have for doing that and it's almost intentionally prompting us to raise those questions in the way that i feel like the homeric texts do and that maybe the new testament from what i've read of it definitely does yeah yeah i i agree with you and i i think that um there is in the beginning, in the preamble, where it's like, God, you know, just God almost having like a friendly bet with another with another angel. Yeah. It seems capricious. It seems like the way gods would play with humans. Um, yeah. And and yeah, so so even though Job and his friends view God as as this omnipotent, awesome, singular, you know, guy in the sky, he's not acting that way. And he deceive. I'm not deceiving Job, but like actively not telling him anything about the first part when he comes to answer him, right? Yeah. Like, so let's talk about his yeah his answer. So he comes in. The last thing El, how do you pronounce it? Elihu. 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 Uh, yeah. He says the Almighty is beyond our reach and exalted in power and his justice and great righteousness he does not oppress. Therefore, right. men revere him. For does he not have regard for all the wise in heart? And then it really is like this speech never happened. Then the Lord answered Job out of the story. Right. Like right. it's like Job hasn't been talking for five chapters. So <laughs> how like is Ecclesiast- he? Yeah, it's like Ecclesiastes when they add something at the end. It's like <laughs> yeah. And then I don't know. You want to describe his speech? It's yeah. I like I I want to just. Just uh, say that, like the first time I remember being a kid and reading Job and getting to this part. So you're like, okay, all of this, like it's gone on for too long. It's it's 
I think we haven't talked about the language. I think the language is beautiful, but it's gone on for these three cycles of repeating the same thing. And, and you're, you're ready for an answer. You're like, Oh, sweet. Like I remember actually thinking sweet, God's going to actually explain it. Yeah. And then the Lord answers Job out of the storm or in some translations, the whirlwind. And you know what God's answer is? He just changes the subject. God changes the subject and never answers, right? <laughs> he says, the first part is just saying like, you don't, you don't know. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me, do you understand? Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. He's being a sarcastic prick. He's like, who... Oh, you must know. No, tell me. I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated. I want to hear you describe creating the earth. <laughs> Who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb? Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place? Like, oh, like, are, do you do that? Like, I, sorry, Job, I didn't know. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I want to hear uh, about this. Uh, and he says, surely you know, you, for you were already born. You've lived so many years. <laughs> just, and then Job says... I haven't lived that many years, and don't call me Shirley. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, it's actually not that example, but there is there is a lot of language here that that you realize, oh, that it must that came from Job, like the Book of Job. Oh, totally, stuff we say all the time. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's like a rap battle almost. How he's talking (laughs) about how powerful he is and how yeah, powerless job is you're right it's like a big willyism it's like it, it, big it's just big willy rap yeah yeah i don't know what that is but i it's just it. yeah no it's just <laughs> braggadocious like i have a bigger dick than you. <laughs> yeah exactly yeah it's it's like it's it's kind of magnificent as an example of that i don't want to understate that it has some real power what god is saying yeah. In the poetry and in all the ways that it's describing uh, the things that God ha- has done and continues to do for the universe and the world. But what, he's talking a lot about animals, <laughs> like how, yeah. how he's like, you know, and, and then he goes on to talk more about animals. One of the things um, that I came across was, that, well, maybe what God is doing here is saying, uh, there is so much more in the world and in the universe than just you, Job. Like I'm, ta- I'm, you know, worried about the seas and like the creatures of, of land. And like, I have to tame the ox and I have to f- show the lions, you know, how to feed their kids. So it's, you could read it as, as don't, don't think that you're the focus of all of my activities. Um, but it's certainly not explicit and it doesn't feel satisfying. But also, that's not true, because he was the focus of this activity. Like, he specifically did this to Job to prove a point to Satan. So he can say, I have all this other stuff to uh, attend to. I can't, like, worry about, like, what Job is feeling. But, like, no, he could. He took the time to allow Satan to do all this stuff to Job. Yeah. No, like absolutely. Like he is, he is a God who is, is you could sort of pretend to ignore that first part. I mean, the first part has to be said because of the righteousness of Job is sort of has to be firmly planted. But really the rest of the story is, is not at all. It's not connected to that initial thing at all. Like it's just like, why do you say even God forgets? 
Oh, like the, even, oh yeah. I see. Yeah. Even God forgets that. It, no, actually, he did do this to Job. <laughs> yeah. He's like, oh, shit, that's right. Uh, the Satan, I had told him. <laughs> oh, no, um, you're... I mean, there's a way of reading the ending where he does kind of come to that realization. Um, but I guess we'll get to that. So, But there, I, there's a couple things where he says, like, brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? Yeah, exactly. Where in this case, he would have a right to by God's own admission in those first two prose things. Then he goes back to, can you pull in the Leviathan with a fish hook or tie down his tongue with a rope? Can you pull a cord through his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Can you make a pet of him like a bird or put him on a leash for your girls? <laughs> yeah, and then the behemoth. Uh, it's it's interesting that he talks about these creatures. Um, so some, like the behemoth, some people think it's just a hippopotamus and the leviathan is like an alligator. But so, so Job, like, uh, like he makes Job answer him and Job's like, no, I'm sorry, you're right, I shouldn't have spoke. And then he makes him answer again after telling job how much how powerful he is yeah his first i mean his very first answer is super short right uncharacteristic of job he says i am unworthy how can i reply to you i put my hand over my mouth i spoke once but i have no answer twice i will but i will say no more and so he's just basically just been shut up and i don't know when reading it whether this indicates that job was satisfied with what god was saying um you know, at parts earlier on, Job is saying, like, all I want is for God to come and talk to me. Like, yeah. I just want that audience with God. And maybe he didn't care what he said. He just wanted God to, like, show up and actually have have the guts to show his face. Yeah. And, you he, know. he wanted to testify. He yeah. wanted his, his day in court, as you said. But yeah. then, so chapter 42, this is very yeah. puzzling to me. So Job replies to the Lord, like, you, like, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my counsel without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you shall answer me. My ears have heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. He is contrite as you said and he has and and the lord has shown himself to job which is what he wanted but then here's the part that i find very puzzling after the lord had said these things to job he said to uh, eliphaz the temanite i am angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant job has why is he angry with the three friends? Like, what did they say that was wrong, given what the Lord now is saying? I, do, I, do. I mean, the only thing that, that I can think of is that the friends were accusing Job of having acted in, in some evil way, and he didn't. And so he's, it's weird, because he's telling off Job sort of, by like, you know, who are you to, to question me? But then he's coming to his defense and saying, like, you guys were talking shit about my boy Job, like, so I'm mad at you. But also that Job has spoken right. 
He says, you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant that, Job has. Uh, uh, <laughs> I was like, wait a minute. This Tamler is why I think this was, this is a sneaky, the answer to the theodicy is God isn't just. Right. I think that's the sneaky part of this book where, where God is saying, Job was right. He didn't do shit. And guess what? What that means, what is entailed by Job being right, uh, is that God must not be just. And so that's, I mean, that's interesting. I like that. If, if he's admitting that he's not just, although he's still angry, furious, that Job yeah. would question his justice, and now wants the friends to, to sacrifice and Job to pray for them, I mean, it's very paradoxical. Yeah. Like if, if, uh, if, if he's telling the friends that he's not just, then why was he so mad that Job was questioning his justice? I, I suppose it's not technically inconsistent, but it does kind of... It, it, I, yeah. I, what, well, the way that I read it is that God is, is simply his, his, his annoyance at Job is to have the hubris to try to understand God's ways. And so he says like, well, you're not even close to really understanding what I do, but it's true that I did fuck with you (laughs) for no good reason. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think there, I, I do not think that Job, the book of Job offers anything by way of a satisfactory uh, answer to the problem of, of evil. And, and I found, I found, I'll put a link to this paper, a very, very good paper called God's Answer to Job, where he, uh, the author goes through the various defenses of, of God that people have given, um, trying to somehow reconcile God's justice with what's happening in Job. And he concludes that there is no satisfactory answer. He says, I conclude then that when God answers Job, I'm quoting here, he should not be understood as saying, trust me, Job, I have a good reason for afflicting you. If you just hold on to your faith, everything will come right for you in the end. The God who answers Job out of the whirlwind does not offer that kind of reassurance. This God promises nothing, either in this world or the next. Yeah. Um, and and I think that's right. I think, and I think that this is a deeply wise book because the only real answer to the problem of evil is that we were wrong to expect anything else. Yes. So, and and you know, you could certainly read, I think Ecclesiastes is almost... Especially, is especially amenable to that kind of reading, too. However, doesn't it sort of undercut it that you have this tidy little, and Job was rewarded with double the property and the same, and prettier daughters, and, uh, yeah. and 140 more years. And so at least it offers the possibility of Job had to tough this out. And Right, and... It doesn't it seem like a little pastiche to you? Like mm-hmm. I'm going to continue reading uh, the the next paragraph of this paper that I was quoting. It says it is true, of course, that Job is rewarded handsomely in the epilogue, receiving double his original wealth, twice the normal lifespan, and an equal number of replacement children. But it does not help us with the interpretation. <laughs> I know that's I that. we, I was, I've always wanted to, yeah to have a real conversation about the view that. Yeah. Um, 
But he says it does not help us with the interpretation of God's answer and Job's response. Job was already fully satisfied by the theophany, the appearance of God, which contained not a hint of the coming restoration of his fortunes. So, and, and in any case, Job's restoration looks more like compensation for pointless suffering than like a good God, than a, like a good that God wanted to achieve through Job's misfortune. It seems as if he won damages, like they settled and he won yeah. damages. <laughs> I guess if he won damages and God admitted that he was wrong, then what was he so furious about when he was, is it sort of like if you start yelling at your kid for questioning you and then you realize that, well, technically the kid is right. Your, your <laughs> child is right in this instance, but there's no way for the, your child to have known that. And it's still disrespectful to even question it, but you know, you feel a little guilty. You, you feel like, a little guilty, and so you. I, I guess I could see that. It, it's certainly as plausible a way of trying to bring the text together, like trying I mean, to make it's, sense it's, of it, coherent sense of it. I also think you could also read it as not even intending to have a coherent message. Yeah. Well, I think the discomfort that this, that God's response gives is a good, I like that feeling. You're left with a feeling of questioning more. You're not left, like, if if it had been wrapped up neatly, I don't think it would be considered one of the great books. No. Right? And and there is this, you know, as you say, like, God God's speech is, isn't, isn't, it isn't even admitting that he's wrong. He's not admitting at all that he's not just. Not at all. Yeah. And I think that you couldn't you couldn't write that book where God comes in and says, "You're right. I suck." I, I don't think you can write that. And they couldn't write it. It wouldn't be. I think you have to just say like, "Don't question me." But I think it's a wink, wink, nudge, nudge that like Job was right to question. So this is a your Straussian reading of the book of Job. <laughs> no, it, it's so amenable to that. An esoteric reading. Like, Ecclesiastes almost flat out just favors that reading. Yeah. Here, it does seem like it's a little more concealed, if that's what it's saying. It's like, yeah, yeah. you have a right to question. I'm not saying you should do it in every instance, and you may get shouted down if you do, but you have a point and, you know, all, and the best you can hope for is a settlement, you know? Yeah. I, and, you know, and Ecclesiastes has the advantage of not having to deal with, with God. Right. It doesn't really deal with God. It's just wisdom about this earth. And it's, and it's sort of saying, we, you know, we don't know. This life is a lot of pain and suffering and existential uncertainty. And this is actually bringing God into it is like, well, now you have, now you have to give, God has to say something. He's a character in your book. What does he say? And I'm, I'm just a human being writing this, this story. And, and it feels right. It feels as if there is some deep wisdom there where the human writing the story had to make God just show up in a storm, talk about how amazing he is and leave Job. And, and this we haven't talked about. I think that Job is somehow psychologically comforted by God's response in a way that I don't know that I would be, but 
But there is something in Job's attitude that seems to say, like, okay, like I'm at peace with what's happened. Well, it's sort of like if you, I don't know, if you email a guy repeatedly trying to get a response to something that you are angry at them for, and then they finally, after years, respond to you, and they completely you know, deny your complaint or deny that they were wrong or whatever, it still feels good that they took the time <laughs> right. to respond. Right. You know, like, yeah. at least he did get to uh, have his appeal heard. Yeah, I agree that he seems psychologically comforted. I was interested in a lot of people looking at this from Job's perspective. People are angry at Job for just giving in the way he does. <laughs> Huh. Like I don't yeah. blame Job really if you know if you see a whirlwind and then God and <laughs> uh, I but but like so I was reading this piece in the New Yorker by Joan Acachella. I don't know if I hope I'm pronouncing that right. And she was talking about Ellie Wazell. Ellie Wazell was very upset by Job's capitulation. Uh, especially in light of the Holocaust, where people were saying about the Jews that they went like lambs to the slaughter. They didn't rebel. They didn't protest. Mm -hmm. They just did it. And uh, she writes that an alter ego in one of his novels never ceased resenting Job uh, and says that the big biblical rebel should never have given in. And then Elie Wiesel, at a certain point, just decided that he hadn't given in. Wazel says, contrary to the usual reading, Job did not submit when God told him that he must. You can tell, Wazel says, because in the text that we have, he submitted so fast. He was just pretending. The true ending, Wazel preferred to believe, was lost. More recently, he changed his mind and settled on the idea that Job merely chose silence, not submission. Job, he wrote, had learned he lived in a world that was cold and cynical, a world without true friends, but one nevertheless in which God seeks to join man in his solitude. That's great, and and I think uh, I think it's wise, and I I it's consistent with what I was reading, and I don't remember where, but there when Job is responding to God, and he says, therefore. In this, in this translation, it says, My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. That phrase, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes, apparently has three or four possible translations that this seems to be the, the sort of most reverent one. Right. The other ones are more like, I will sit here in the dust and ashes and I am nothing. Yeah. And I think that is the experience, like God coming through the storm and Job seeing him with his own eyes is like, let me just read this uh, um, because I think it says it nicely. Book of Job moves back and forth between these two poles, between the idea of a God who cares about the doings of of particular men like Job and the idea of a God who is almost too big, too mysterious too holy other for anything like that to make sense. In the experience of the whirlwind, whirlwind, Job is confronted with sheer transcendence. He is reminded of the chasm that lies between creator and creature and forced to take into account the infinite difference between God's point of view and ours. 
and and maybe that's just like he was either intimidated into silence or he was like well fine then fine at least you showed up and right yeah and at least if i'm going to be friendless and i'm gonna have to suffer for no good reason at least you're yeah at least you're willing to show your face and yeah justify and when yourself, i was even if i get when i was reading at, this <laughs> yeah when i was reading this i was thinking that uh that this is this is sort of <laughs> one of the only instances where you have a restorative justice between god and and man mm-hmm. right because usually you don't get any of that <laughs> in the stories of the bible it's just god was right yeah i mean genesis I remember Abraham bargaining with God on behalf of the people of mm-hmm. Sodom and God being willing to to negotiate, but that's not God with the person that he's... That's suffering. That's, that's yeah, suffering, that yeah, right, or that right. will suffer, or that's been sinful, or that hasn't, yeah. It's funny when people bargain with God. There's in Ezekiel, there's a... God tells Ezekiel to bake bread, and he gives them a specific recipe and that recipe people make you can still make bread with that recipe but in the in the original um recipe god says to bake it with uh by using human shit in the fire and ezekiel is like no i can't do that that's unclean he's like and then god says okay okay fine use cow shit <laughs> it's it's really interesting the god of the old testament and I don't I wish I knew more about the kind of the Yahweh version versus the right. like the, the Elohim. Elohim version but it really is a god that is a lot more interactive and that seems to regret certain things you know the the flood and you know oh god I really messed this up let me start again and uh, <laughs> yeah, and, and it's just and, and tribal, like plays favorites. You know, like he's very tribal. He's like, hey, kill, destroy all of those people, like all of the men, women, and the children, burn it to the ground. But, yeah, and just <laughs> will choose to like one brother over another brother for no real reason. Um, yeah, just because. So, like, I think the job is great because it kind of brings all of that to a head. It's sort of implicit in the other books where the reader might question it, but here Job is just directly yeah. questioning it himself. And what's, I think the thing that makes this such a masterpiece of literature and why we're still talking about it is that, that opening, as you've said repeatedly, Job's complaint has his real right. basis in, in the text and the text is, explicitly making us understand that and never fully responding to it and that's pretty you know the like you said it's almost like god forgot that he did that <laughs> yeah and, uh, yeah I, I was thinking as you were talking like that this is a god who is like there is that very involved very tribal yahweh of the old testament and then there is this mysterious ethereal omnipotent sort of like concerned with the universe god who seems to in the book of job come down from that do a little dealing with human beings directly and then go back up to that that you know whirlwind of the fact maybe that he came down from all that just to talk personally to job even if he forgot i really do i think that's the best it's almost like the flood and like there are two floods 
we're about to do Genesis again in my great books course. So I'll be able to report on this, but (laughs) report like I'm (laughs) (laughs) live, (laughs) live from uh, Babylonia or whatever. But but it's almost like he's starting over with Job's like, yeah, sorry about that. Here, here's your 10. Here's double the property (laughs) and uh, we'll start this over. Pretend this never happened (laughs) kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, I I wonder what he did with his wife. We never hear from his wife again. Well, but the wife is it's still you get the sense that it's she's still the mother of all these other children. So, yeah. Fertility <laughs> and and weirdly it says that and Job granted the daughters inheritance along with their brothers. Like goes out of its way to say that like oh Job also treated his daughters equally. Like like he wasn't going to for the first round. And and apparently the it's it's one of the only texts where the 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 daughters are named but not the sons. Yeah, interesting. And one of them is Jemima. Yeah. <laughs> That's where that comes um, from. Right. <laughs> yeah. Is there, uh, we didn't talk about the language too much and we didn't quote that much, but I, I just want to say that, that even though it's long and it's beautiful, it's, there's a lot of just beautiful language here. Yeah. It's funny. Like I felt this more with Ecclesiastes than I did with Job. And I know I, I, this is, me that's in the wrong because I I think like there's something I'm missing in terms of that I I didn't feel that as much as I, a lot of people do who have I, written about I think about that it. may maybe it suffers from repetitiveness and when you're reading you know it's 42 chapters it's not a this this is a very dense book and they're saying a lot of the same things so it's almost just for the sake of the poetic like. They're just repeating, repeating a lot. And uh, so it takes way more attention. I still, I I still think that every, whoever is interested in reading this should take time out to, to appreciate the poetry. And I wish, I, I wish I knew how to appreciate poetry even better than I do. Cause I I don't, I'm I'm the same way. Dostoevsky was obsessed with this. Yeah. It comes up multiple times in brothers karamazov um it is right ivan ivan is like uh, his response to job is like well the fuck that god like god that god is clearly unjust yeah and i'm not playing ball i'm not gonna be a part of this anymore and uh and you know that's something that dostoevsky he understood the force of that reply like yeah. as well as anybody, but he didn't want to be on board with it, and he tried constantly to give us a, a satisfying reply to it. Uh, I know. One one day we'll talk about Dostoevsky or the Brothers Karamazov because I always wonder. I always had a sneaking suspicion that that he that Dostoevsky was speaking through Ivan and trying really hard to speak through through Alyosha, but but Ivan wins, <laughs> and, and and Dostoevsky knows that Ivan wins. I I think you know. There's a lot to be said for that. I don't know how we would do that, but if yeah. we could figure out a way to do the Brothers Karamazov, maybe over three or four <laughs> episodes, it that would be very, very fucking cool. Yeah, I want to read that book again. Ah, all right. All right, well, join us next time and you will get the same number of children and double the oxen. <laughs> <laughs>